Hello, hello. Yes. Thank you for uh, me again. I, I appreciate it very much. And uh, so today we're going to continue to use uh, to adopt the mindfulness with breathing uh, as a jumping off point to talk about the anatomic costume. Susa is strange. And in the previous discussions, we've uh, summarized four tetrads, and then we worked through the first, second, third, and fourth screenings. And so today we'll begin talking about the second tetrad in, in depth, and we'll start this training, uh, which he uh, has translated here as he trains himself thoroughly experiencing species. I shall breathe in. Train self, thoroughly experiencing the I shall breathe out. Mm -hmm. uh, he has a few, you know, obviously a few things to say about that, but just a few maybe I'll, I'll just throw out here. Uh, uh, you know, he says that the Vedana are the masters or dictators of our lives. When we are unable to control them, we become their slaves. Yes. And I'll just say I appreciate that very straightforward um, and um, type of language. Uh, it feels very incisive and direct, um, whereas you feel like maybe some other teachers would soften it, you know. Uh, but one other thing here that I found interesting uh, was this. So he says there are two kinds of Vedana, foolish feelings conditioned by ignorance and wise feelings conditioned by correct understanding. Yes. Mm -hmm. If we are foolish at the moment of sensory contact, Foolish feelings arise if we are clever and knowledgeable at the moment of sense contact. Wise feelings arise. Foolish feelings lead to ignorant desire or craving. Wise feelings lead to correct desire and wise wanting. We should make sure that the Vedana are always wise feelings. Um, okay, let me uh, come in on <clears throat> on some of this. We're looking at first off two kinds of feelings, and second off, we're making the distinction between those two kinds of feelings as wise feelings versus ignorant feelings. He also used a word in passing there, and that was contact which is a very important word that <clears throat> that basically uh, when Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa is talking about Anapanasati, he's doing it from a firm foundation of the understanding of Paticca Samapada, which a lot of people, when they read the sutta, they don't have that foundation, so they're beginning to miss a few things, okay? Now, 
the point about Petita Samupada is, is that the things that contact us through our sensory awareness, through our sensory input, is not actually what contacts us, is the thing out there that actually imp, uh, impressed the senses, but rather that the senses have to go through a processing uh, in order to fully understand or to make sense out of it for the human. And so it's our internal representation of what we see that contacts us. Mm -hmm. This is an important point, okay? That we, uh, the reality is, is that we don't, humans don't live in reality. They lived in a constructed reality. And we could, if we lived in real reality, we couldn't make any sense out of it at all. That we have to try to make sense out of things. How we do that is through a process we call in English perception. There is a Pali word for that, uh, sanya, and also the word nama rupa, which actually in this sense takes means to take the rupa of reality and name it or bring it into the mind in a way. So if I look at that object out there and name it as a tree, that's because I already know what trees are. Mm -hmm. I have seen trees before. I have seen a lot of trees, various varieties. That one is a palm tree. I know it's a palm tree because it uh, fits all of my recollections of all the palm trees that I've ever seen. Okay. Now, this is the whole quality that we have to understand is what contacts us is not the sense object, but it's what we make out of it. Mm -hmm. What we make out of it comes out of our past. This is what is called the Sankara, which means that our uh, current perception is flavored by our past, which means if we've mist made mistakes in the past, it's quite logical for us to continue to make that same mistake. For instance, misnaming something and continuing to misname it. Mm. That in fact, we give it a new name by misnaming it and we continue to use that name that we have uh, invented for it, even if it doesn't fit with other people. Okay, so this is the naming process and it's that naming process that, that is bound to bring in not only old uh, concepts, but old feelings as well. And so this current moment, if it is ignorance, means that it's going to be influenced by past feelings. And if this present moment contact is wise, then that means that the feelings that are arising are going to be arising according to this current moment and not so much flavored by the past. Is this sort of what is uh, partly how uh, karma is understood? Yes, karma is uh, understood as not just the results of past actions, but that but uh, our actions are stored as memories. And so the results of past actions 
uh, can be stored so that they brought up in the present moment. This is exactly why Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa talks about the issue of you've got a choice to either follow your karma, which means to follow your old habits, which means to follow the, um, the cause-effect relationships of the past. And another way of saying it is to follow your destiny or to follow providence, okay? Or you can wake up and make a choice. You can become wise or you, uh, by waking up and, and seeing that what we feel right now was influenced by the past, or basically, if we wake up soon enough, then our feelings are not, uh, in fact, influenced by the past, but they're absolutely brand new in this present moment. This is what we kind of mean by wise feelings as opposed to ignorant feelings. And this means sati, or mindfulness, or wisdom, at that point of contact. Mm-hmm. And what is that point of contact when something hits us? Or when we say we realize something. Mm -hmm. All right. Guess what? That's a misuse of the word. We don't realize anything. I don't realize that that's a tree. If I realized that tree, I would have one growing out of my head. (laughs) A better word would say that we mentalize it. Mm hmm. Okay, and that mentalization that we do is that is what contacts us. And sometimes it has huge amounts of power behind it. So that we we have great expletives that will pop out at that point in time. So, you know, uh, we're receiving uh, input through the sense doors. Mm-hmm. And then the mind... Uh, identifies sort of in an automatic way what those what that different stimulus is so you know you see an object and then the mind says palm tree or you hear Mm -hmm. a sound and your mind says child and that's just sort of an automatic process based on having lived in the world and seen many things and and it happens very quickly But it doesn't happen as fast as one might like in the sense that if you see something, an object, perhaps in motion, and then you try to make sense out of that object, you perceive it and then come up with a mentalization of that object, that time that it took to process that object and to make sense out of that object so that that object can then impact us and cause feelings all of that time that it took meant that now we're no longer watching or paying attention to that object mm-hmm. that it's like a little bit of input a whole lot of processing a realization that impacts us now we're off into feelings and we're still not in the present moment we're in our own feeling systems now Okay, and that that ignorance uh, of those ignorant feelings, the way that we process stuff, then those feelings will lead to grasping and then clinging and then becoming and then uh, um, the the uh, let us say the the self or the being is reborn into one of the woeful states. 
Okay. Now you're talking about uh, about Anapanasati and the pity there. And so let's not turn this into a, to a whole lecture on Paticca Samapada, but rather that the Paticca Samapada now is the foundation for this. So let's look at the other kind of feelings. If, in fact, the kind of feelings that, that occur ignorantly winds us up in a woeful state, that that means that there is one kind of feeling, which is ignorant, that would be in the classification of Fear, anger, guilt, remorse, sadness, grief, and the primary one of all of those is fear. So the fear of loss is the sense of loss. These are ignorant feelings because we've been having those kind of feelings for our whole lives. And then there is the kind of feelings that are wise feelings that could be said in the, an easy way to say it is the kind of feelings that you would want to have would be wise feelings. And the kind of feelings you have when you're not wise are ignorant feelings and those ignorant feelings hurt. And the wise feelings feel nice because we choose them. Why would we intentionally choose to feel bad, though that happens on occasions? Mm -hmm. An example of that is if I feel bad enough and act uh, like I'm hurting bad enough, then maybe I can get someone to rescue me out of my bad feelings. And so we will intentionally have bad feelings. Mm -hmm. For instance, a kid gets sick in the morning so he doesn't have to go to school. Okay, that's an example, not the only, can think of many. But generally, uh, especially if you're sitting alone in seclusion, then the kind of feelings that you're going to have that are ignorant are going to wind up being then the bad feelings that you would want to avoid, and that the kind of feelings you would have that you could have because you know how to have the kind of feelings that you want would be then good feelings. So let's review those, because we just reviewed those on this side, which is anger, fear, sadness, grief, um, a sense of loss. The other side of it is going to be more or less the opposites of that. Instead of fear, we're going to feel uh, safe and secure. Instead of feeling like that we've lost something, we can feel like instead that we've got everything that we need. We haven't lost anything at all. That in fact, because there's no fear, we also have no reason to feel um, angry about anything. That in fact, we can feel quite joyful. This mm -hmm. is where the feelings of pity and sukha come in as trainings. Mm -hmm to train the mind to be in good feelings because we are already well trained in ignorant feelings. <laughs> right, yes. Okay. Understanding too is that, so, you know, you uh, something comes in through the sense doors, your mind identifies it, labels it, and then there's a feeling tone that arises. So, you're, you then experience either uh, 
you find it either pleasant or unpleasant or uh, neutral. Not neutral. That's an absolutely bad translation. Yeah. The poly does not use the word neutral at all. It uses it, and it depends upon where you find it, but it generally has it as either uh, a dukkha, a sukha vedana, or dukkha sukha vedana, which means that it's either neither one or it's mixed. And mm-hmm. in reality, that's kind of how that feeling operates. It operates in the sense that we don't know whether we like it and want it or we don't like it and want to get rid of it. We don't know whether it's dangerous or whether it's friendly. That's a feeling that arises, a feeling of confusion. It can also be called the feeling of doubt, insecurity. We're not sure. We don't know what's going on. And that if that not sureness is an ignorant not sureness, then it can uh, lead to uh doubt and the feelings of danger which then means that it's uh you cannot like it or you can have that feeling wisely in the sense of uh not sure and now that can create something like curiosity that, hey, I would like to figure what that is out, but I don't have to do it ignorantly in the sense of uh, it might be dangerous or something to be avoided. So, uh, this is- an example of that might be, you know, you're camping and uh, you wake up in the middle of the night and you hear a sound and you're not sure what it is. Mm-hmm. Oh, is it a wolf? Is it a child crying? Is it the wind? And you're in that moment of, you know, should I be afraid? Should I not care? Should I be concerned? Should I be, you know? Uh, Right. All of that is ignorant feelings. Uh, Wise feeling would be listen closely. Listen carefully. Figure out what that is. Put that Mm -hmm. together. Use some wisdom in there. But you see, most people will, what you would call, either in a big way or a small way, freak out. (laughs) It might be dangerous. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Or think it's a ghost, or or think irrationally. You know, why would there be a child in the wilderness here? You know, it's not likely, but you go into fear or something. Precisely so. Because that sound doesn't sound like that it ought to be here, but it woke us up. So we may have not gotten a very good, clear uh, hearing of what that sound was. And so we're manufacturing a lot of stuff based upon the fact that uh, we heard it ignorantly and it impressed us ignorantly. And so now is the time to wise up, to wake up and listen closely. So, yes, that would be that example. But let's go back now to uh, Anapanasati and, uh, and, and point out. By the way, one of the things that I would like to point out is, is that I have been spending quite a lot of time recently with some old Mahasi material, oh. where Mahasi generally um, 
misses out on this particular one point that I'm about to discuss in the sense that Mahasi does talk about the removal of the hindrances. But then he says that the removal of the hindrances is so that we can note in the in the, the Mahasi noting style. Uh, but most students don't understand that. And so what they wind up noting is the hindrances mm-hmm. rather than noting while free from hindrances. But in either one of those cases, the student is making a mistake. Because in the teachings of Anapanasati with Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa's teachings is, is that the removal of the hindrances is very important at this point. And how they're removed is kind of important. So let's talk about the various kinds of thought that can exist. There is first off discursive thought, and that's the kind of thinking that we normally associate with thinking, is discursive thought, or let us say verbal thinking and concepts, this kind of thinking. But that's not the only kind of thinking that we do. And when I'm talking about thinking here, I'm talking about how can an individual, a human being, spend a mind moment? One of the ways that they can spend that mind moment is in discursive thought. But there's also the possibility of spending that time in observational thought in the sense of looking at something observing it, watching, for instance, one's breath. This is what the Mahasi method is actually talking about in the sense of noting, is to change the kind of thinking that we have from uh, discursive thinking into observational thinking. Mm -hmm. All right. And yet many of the students will have a hindrance and then an observational thought of that hindrance, and then no more hindrance, and then another observational thought of that hindrance, which is not the right way to practice at all. Mm-hmm. The right way to practice in the Mahasi method is, is to change that discursive thought and drop it and go into just the noting kind of thought. Mm-hmm. Now, there's another kind of way that we can spend the mind moment. And that is in feelings. And in fact, we could also use the word feeling in the sense of observational. Only now what we're observing is that we feel bad. Mm-hmm. Okay, we feel sad, we feel pain, we feel whatever like that. So uh, Vedana is a method of spending a mind moment in the sense that we are um, noting or observing feelings. So we have both a discursive and an observational and kind of a feeling thought. These are the kinds of thoughts. I think that, in fact, we could probably wind up with getting a few more. But these are the ones where we spend most of our time, especially the discursive thought. Now, what the Buddha recommends, which is not part of the Mahasi method, is is that we also work with the discursive thought. That uh, uh, Mahasi seems to point out, and I want to really read it carefully and get all the details out to show, because it appears that 
they only are talking about either hindrances being discursive thought or the noting kind of thoughts, which are observational, and are missing out on a whole different kind of thinking that the Buddha puts a whole lot of emphasis on. And so does Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. And that is the kind of discursive thoughts that are not, in fact, hindrances. Mm-hmm. There are discursive thoughts that, in fact, are useful, valuable, and wholesome. And this is where Mahasi and uh, the Buddha and uh, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa kind of part company is at this point about what are we going to do with the discursive thoughts. Now, there's actually a kind of an issue with the Mahasi method that if they do away with uh, the hindrances and all discursive thoughts, then one is already almost in the neighborhood of the second jhana. Mm-hmm. It is extremely difficult for a person to go absolutely from unwholesome discursive hindrances into no thought at all or into no discursive thought and having only noting thought. That we have to kind of turn that big ship around rather than uh, bring it to a stop. Bringing your ship to a stop is really, really hard to do out on the ocean. Mm-hmm. But what you can do is you can turn it around and change your head uh, its direction. It, it does take a while to turn things around. So this is the analogy that, won't, that we want to use. And this is where Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa is talking about step number 10 of gladdening the mind, because if we do not gladden the mind, then we will not develop pity and sukha cannot be done. We have to do that through the discursive thought. That observational thought in and of itself does not bring on this kind of joy. But rather the discursive thought that you've heard me talk about in the sense of everything's going to be all right, everything is fine, there are no problems, everything is okay. These are the kind of thoughts that are uh, intended to gladden the mind to, to get us into a state of uh, sukha, because the only other option is with the hindrances that are mixed in with the noting thought. So you'll have discursive thought and noting thought, and discursive thought and observational thought mixed together, but neither one of them are taking us out of the feelings that bring that are brought on by the hindrances. Observational thought do not change that the vedana that it is actually the discursive thoughts that we have to change from the unwholesome to the wholesome. And that I can show this in so many different suttas, including the Mahasi's very favorite, favorite one in the, uh, in the Satipatthana Sutta. But it's also very well laid out in uh, the Anapanasati Sutta and also in the exposition of the Eightfold Noble Path, number 117, the Great Forty. It makes a big deal out of it, and then it tells a big story about it in Sutta number 19, which is two kinds of thought. Okay, and what we're talking about here is two kinds of discursive thought. Mm. That Mahasi doesn't make that distinction. He just says uh, hindrances must be removed so that you can do the noting kind of thoughts. But the Buddha talks about two kinds of discursive thought as wholesome thought 
and unwholesome thought. Naturally, the hindrances are going to be unwholesome thought. Let's talk about the wholesome kind of thought, because this is so important. In Sutta number 19, there is an analogy of a cowherd that is taking his cows down a path. And on that path, there are people, there are uh, food stalls, there are children, there's all kinds of things. And so the, the cow herd has to make sure that his cows are not going to be doing a lot of damage going down that pathway. And so he's got a stick. And when that cow goes off the path, maybe gets his face in the, uh, the groceries on that uh, food stall table, then the cow herd is going to whack that cow. He's going to whack him to get him out of danger. Now, a lot of people will say how violent it is for that cow herd to whack that cow. But we're really talking about the cow herd in his mind anyway. And so if the cow herd whacks that cow, then that means that the cow did not mess up that uh, food stall. And therefore, the cow herd can have what a great relief that is, that that cow is about to cause a lot of damage, and he didn't. What a relief it is. I don't have to go there. Okay, this is an important point, that we have to whack that cow. Now, Mahasi actually talks about it in that, in that sense, that a lot of them miss about the noting, that the noting has to actually seize the object. Just like the cowherd has actually whacked that cow. And Bhikkhu Buddha, in fact, you and I read this just not long ago about uh, Anapanasati, where Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa is talking about seizing the breath, taking control over it, mm -hmm. grasping it. All right, so we also need to do that in the sense of whacking that cow to keep it on the path or to keep it from having an unwholesome thought and making sure that it has wholesome thoughts. So we can think of those cows walking as discursive thought. What are the cows going to do? Just sit down and stop? No, they're going to keep going, but you want to keep them in the right direction. You want to herd them so that they are able to travel without any damage. So this is a major point then, is that we have to change our thoughts from unwholesome into wholesome thoughts. Now, the next part of that uh, story is, is that after the cow herd ha uh, has got the cows uh, out to pasture and he's taken them to a place where the, the rice has already been harvested and there's a uh, uh, shaft and, and stubble. And so now it's okay for the cows to eat. In this sense, he can relax because now in our analogy, every thought is wholesome. One wholesome thought after another wholesome thought after another wholesome thought. And now those wholesome thoughts are also mixed in with observational or noting thoughts. So when we're noting now, we're noting wholesome thoughts. Mm -hmm. Okay. Is it beginning to make sense? Yeah. 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 Okay. So this is how the sukha and pity are built up is because we no longer have unwholesome uh, discursive thoughts that keep the mind um, uh, contacting things ignorantly 
giving rise to ignorant feelings that wind up having us with anxiety, tensions, worries, whatnot like that. So you can see the meditator sitting there in uh, his meditation, and he begins to observe uh, anxiety, a restlessness, not understanding that this is normally the result of having observational thoughts mixed with hindering thoughts or unwholesome thoughts. But when we can get it all into one wholesome thought after another wholesome thought after another wholesome thought, one after another, that is when the cow herd can now, out to, while the cows are out to pasture, he can relax. But we don't hear in the Mahasi method this quality of being able to relax because now all of the thought, all of the mixture of observational thoughts and discursive thoughts are all wholesome. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's the important thing. So now that the cow herd can relax, this is actually part of then, let us put step four of Anapanasati in here, that the body relaxes. Mm-hmm. The fear relaxes. There's nothing to be afraid of. And we keep telling ourselves and pointing that out, that there's nothing to be afraid of. There is no job that needs to be done. But if we have hindering thoughts, we can think of all kinds of things that could go wrong that we might need to go fix right now. So uh, a practitioner who, you know, was working through the first, second, third, fourth training will enter into the first jhana, which is characterized by directed thought, evaluation, and singleness of preoccupation. And when there's a good balance of those... Where did you read that? Is that out of the Anapanasati suttas, uh, Anapanasati book that you're uh, reading? Uh, that definition of jhana uh, is not in there, um, but we talked about that last time. Okay. Yes. So that comes. Now here's that's another point. Then is is that uh, the jhana, the first jhana, which Mahasi would point to as the uh, uh, full absorption. Full samadhi, as opposed to access concentration. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm not really sure about this access concentration. Uh, that, in fact, a possibly better way of looking at it is, is that the real access concentration that they're all talking about is actually first jhana, mm-hmm. and then the absorption that they're talking about then is second jhana, because this is when the discursive thoughts come. Uh, uh, fall away completely. But in first jhana, we do have discursive thoughts and we use them to great advantage. Why? Yeah. Because they're applied to an object and directed to that object and sustained on that object. And what is that object? Wholesome discursive thought. That's how we're able to have one wholesome thought after another after another is because the mind has already that quality of being able to apply the mind and sustain it on only the wholesome. And that makes it a jhana factor, not the only. There's five jhana factors, but uh, the number one 
most important jhana factor at all is that the mind is free from unwholesome thoughts. But first jhana is not free from wholesome thoughts. And in fact, first jhana is all about how to manage discursive thoughts so that they will be wholesome. It's not possible for you to drop discursive thoughts just dropping them. That's not going to happen. We have to learn to control them first before we, in other words, we've got to get the pajamas on the kid. We've even got to get the kid into the house and then get the kid into pajamas before we can get him in bed. Mm -hmm. If you cannot even get the kid to come into the house, how are we going to get him in bed? (laughs) Okay, so this is the way that we have to look at it. If If the mind is completely unwholesome, it's not going to go from completely unwholesome all over the place with all of these bad feelings and all of this work to do and everything into silence. Not going to happen. The mind doesn't work that way. And so it's kind of amazing that the Mahasi method would leave this out. Because we cannot go from discursive thought to only noting thought. That we only can go from discursive thought uh, that is unwholesome into discursive thought that is wholesome. And this is then the first, uh, let us say, a factor of the first jhana is this wholesome thought. Now, once we get the mind into the wholesome thoughts, we could begin to wholesomely talk ourselves into feeling good, just like all of these years with the hindrances, we have talked ourselves into feeling bad. Mm-hmm. Okay, like the child, for instance, uh, on the way home from school, on the bus, realizes that he did not bring his homework home with him. He left it at school. One thought, and now he's in panic. And he's going to possibly stay in panic until he gets home and maybe in panic all evening and, and panic in the next morning when he goes back to school. Okay, so one little thought can cause that panic. Yeah. But if we don't have any unwholesome thoughts, in other words, if the child had had that one thought, I left the the work at school and the child could say, well, what can I do to get it? I don't know how to go get it. The school is locked. I can't get back to the school. There's nothing that I can do. Let me at least enjoy the ride home on the bus. (laughs) But very few kids are that uh, wise. They cannot wake up to that. And so they'll be in misery and anxiety all the way home, thinking that something bad is going to happen to where, in fact, nothing bad is happening. Mm -hmm. So uh, what we need to do then is to train the mind into being wholesome so that we can talk ourselves into feeling good, just like that child on the bus talked himself into feeling bad. Oh, no, what about that homework? Oh, I don't know how to get it. Oh, everything's going to go wrong. You can hear all of the thoughts that will go on uh, that are associated with that, building up the bad feelings. And there's no wholesome thoughts in there anywhere. And and so in this training, the fifth one, uh, which focuses the attention on the PT, um, so he... Uh, it writes in here that 
uh, once the breath is calmed, these feelings of piti and sukha appear, and then we take the piti and sukha as the object of our practice. Uh -huh. and so recommend, you know, really trying to become familiar with the piti here. So, for instance, is it heavy? Is it light? Is it coarse? Is it subtle? To investigate the influence that the PT has on the mind and thoughts. And uh, something interesting here, he says that there's different levels of PT. Um, oh, absolutely. And he How good can you are, feel? <laughs> that there are three in particular. So, uh, what what it, what gets translated as satisfaction? Uh, so okay, so no, I think so. Rapture, which is high, contentment, which is middle, and then satisfaction, which is low. All right, you have to understand that Santicaro is trying to play with words there, trying to bring in concepts that he really doesn't knows that much about this is an important point but yes we can talk about it in 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 threes but before we do that let's talk about piti sukha as a concept first now the word piti uh is generally followed in the suttas as piti sukha and sometimes the uh, the combination of piti sukha is just left out using the word piti. Mm -hmm. Now, um, the reason why piti sukha is not actually said as sukha piti is because the piti is the bigger of the two. Yeah, more more energetic. Yeah. Uh, and so I've got a someone I'm a new student. Let me uh, all right. So now we can go back. Um, the the suka though is something that generally comes first mm. even though pity is referred to linguistically as pity sukha but is kind of the combination of the two and that the way that we develop it is with the the sukha first and then as the sukha grows it kind of grows into Pity. Hmm. And another way that you can think of it is, is that there is like a wave. Notice my finger. Okay, that there's kind of a wave and that sometimes it goes way up. That when it goes way up, that would be the pity. But hmm. it is, it's going to peak, peak and trough. And when it goes back down, then it's going to go back down into sukha. And generally, the way that it happens with people is something spectacular will happen. Ordinary pity, then, for the ordinary person will arise in a big, spectacular way. And then it will melt down into sukha. 
Mm-hmm. There's two ways that I can tell you about that. One is like at a football uh, match, let's say a pro a football game, and uh, one of the players makes a touchdown. What does he do immediately following the touchdown? Celebrates, slams the ball, jumps around. Spikes around, spikes the ball, jumps around, and displays great pleasure, success. That is pity in action right there. That is an absolutely observable. And then, in fact, not only that, but look at what's happening in the stands, especially the part of the stands where the fans are that are fans of that particular football uh, player. What do the fans do? Yeah, same thing, jumping around, great excitement. Jumping around, maybe with their arms in the air, they stand, they shout, they cheer. Okay, so what do the fans do about a minute later? Mm. What oh, do they, they all, do? They all sit down. And what? Mm. Well, they're all probably clapping each other on the back and, you know, smiling. Sign- and- and smiling and sighing with relief and taking on the scoreboard and going into a state of easygoing pleasure. That's sukkah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, another example, New Year's Eve, Times Square. Many people in Times Square traveled long distance, paid expensive hotel rooms, and now you've got a million people before Corona. (laughs) And the ball starts to drop. And what does everybody do? They start to count down. And when that ball gets down to zero, what happens? Jumping around, celebrating. Yay, yay. Uh Uh-huh. Lots of noise. What happens a minute or so after that? Maybe the band strikes up. Everybody hugs each other now and swings back and forth to Al Lang Syne. <laughs> you can see that pity suka sequence right there also. Yeah. Okay. Now, the ignorance is, is that everyone in that football stadium and everyone in Times Square thought that the reason that they went there was to have those really wonderful good feelings because it was the the score or it was the new years that caused those great wonderful feelings huh guess what those feelings were created inside of each individual one but there was a cue or there was a uh, an anchor, or there was a trigger, or there was a button that was pushed. Why can't we find those same buttons while sitting peacefully on the floor? <laughs> the answer is we can. Mm-hmm. Okay, that we can get ourselves into that state of uh, euphoria is a probably better word than rapture. Yeah. And so, I'm not and, sure about the word bliss, but euphoria tends to work as that top-level thing, okay? But he also used the word contentment and satisfaction. 
In fact, I would like to point out that the word satisfaction is extraordinarily powerful as a word. Why? Because it is, in fact, exactly opposite of dukkha. I don't think that they, that uh, though Bhikkhu Buddhadasa certainly knows about this, I don't think that Santikaro was making a point of it. And that is, is that sukha is the exact opposite of dukkha. Sukha is the exact opposite of dukkha, which means when you have sukha, you're free from dukkha, which means that if you have sukha, you're in third noble truth. Mm. Okay, this is actually why that sukha is such an important quality of the first jhana. And the first uh, that sukha is also very, very close to its companion of pity. Pity and sukha go together. And with the, the pity, you can also have sort of uh, energetic feelings in the body, tingling and... Um... Didn't that guy who spiked that football have energetic feelings in his body? What about the guys that are uh, jumping up and down in the stands? Look what they're doing with their bodies. It's, it, they feel extremely energetic. That's exactly what pity does for it. It rouses us up. It's a state of euphoria. And there can be sensations of like squeezing in, in the forehead or throbbing. And is that PT as well? Well, uh, I don't think that it would be useful for us to try to get a complete list of all the possible bodily sensations that can occur with pity because everywhere it could affect every place on your body because you're actually changing the body chemistry you're actually changing the blood chemistry and because of that you can experience it all over but let me give you some of them that they talk about in the suttas that are actually very experienceable and that is, is that the hair will, will stand up on end. They call it goosebumps, okay? Especially on the back of the neck. Another feeling that can occur is the feeling of tingling, like this, that comes up the back. This is actually in, in the uh, Hindu system. This is the Kundalini. The Kundalini arising is nothing but the energy but also you can feel that tingling in the legs and in the arms and that actually it can uh, cause jerkiness in the body. Mm -hmm. That the pity can become so strong that the, that the person actually kind of sitting in, uh, in meditation posture, the knees will jerk and it looks like that they're bouncing on the floor, sometimes even making a noise. All right, so this is the kind of pity that can occur as a bodily sensation, but none of those things actually have any quality to it at all. That the real quality to the feeling is the feeling that goes along with the feeling of satisfaction or the, yeah. uh, the feeling of, right, this is so nice. Yeah, so, you know, having um, a little experience, you know, with... Uh, initially with the Mahasi method and what what they call the paths of uh, the insight stages. 
So there's a, a stage of insight they call the arising and passing away. Um, and uh, I think from my own experience, um, when I first uh, went into maybe what they call the arising and passing away, it was essentially when I finally got into first jhana and I started to get, you know, that feeling, uh, the sukha and the PT, and then no, the they didn't the mention body. it. This is in fact strip thirteen of Anapanasati. The arising and the passing away is step thirteen. The anicca, the arising, and then the passing away is step fourteen. Anapanasati, arising and passing away. And there definitely seems to be sort of a point of a passage. So once you get first jhana. And you, and you begin to get the feelings of the PT and the sukha, it seems like you always are able to access it because for the seven years, basically, that I wasn't practicing in a formal way, I would get PT sensations um, just, you know, sort of spontaneously or, you know, I would, you know, uh, incline the mind to, to think about something and <clears throat> I'd start to get, you know, pulsations in the forehead or I get little tingles and stuff like that. So it, it seems like you just told me that you can talk yourself into feeling good. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Isn't that amazing? You were practicing Anapanasati and thinking that you weren't. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Um, you were actually out there riding a bicycle without a bicycle. And I use that analogy because of the, the, the point about a bicycle riding, the coordination and the balance. Once we learn how to do that, it's uh, you can go 10 or 15 years without riding a bicycle and within 30 seconds, mm -hmm. you got that bicycle again, All right? So yeah. once you start developing the practice of Anapanasati, you uh, the whole idea is that, um, especially if you're intent on doing it, then throughout the day you begin to do it often. Or if you just forget about a formal practice altogether, still from time to time, you will be able to talk yourself into feeling good again. <laughs> now, one of the interesting things here in this section of the book is then he has some uh, sort of critiques of uh, PT. So he, uh, as part of the training of observing the PT, uh, it's recommended that you observe that the PT is not peaceful. Uh, there is a kind of excitement or disturbance. All oh, levels yeah. are as stimulating as causing the sita to tremble and shake. Yes, just like that football player jumping around after he makes that touchdown. You would think that once he made that touchdown that he had the thought, now I can rest. That instead yeah. of jumping around or cheering and any of that kind of stuff, as soon as he makes that touchdown, he would just lay the ball down and lay down. <laughs> Take a deep breath. Wow, I'm glad that's over. But they don't. That pity, in fact, is disturbing. Yeah, but it is a whole lot less disturbing than hindering thoughts. Right. 
And so, in fact, we could go then, the Buddha talks about it in the sense of one wholesome thought after another wholesome thought after another wholesome thought itself. Now, even though that's much more peaceful than uh, one unwholesome thought after another or wholesome mixed with unwholesome or unwholesome mixed with observational thoughts. Having one discursive thought after another mixed with uh, observational thoughts then also is a bit of tiring, a bit of fatiguing in and of itself. And so the next thing then to happen is once we're able to get unwholesome thoughts out of the mind and have only wholesome thoughts one after another, now we can begin to put some space between the wholesome thoughts. In other words, the cow herd can in fact from time to time rest his eyes, close his eyes for a second or two and rest and then open his eyes and continue to observe the cows to make sure they're not wandering off. And then he can rest again. Okay, so that means that we can begin once we get first John a very, very firmly established so that we do have control over the pity and control over the sukha. We can let this pity melt away into more of a sukha mm-hmm. and let the mind come to um, uh, having some space. Now, when the mind generally stops altogether for the first time a practitioner, and I remember talking about this to Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa because I had already had that experience with um, uh, in the, uh, when I was with Goanka. So we talked about it in the sense that when the mind stops completely, the first thing that happens is great euphoria, more pity. <laughs> Finally, I've got the darn thing to stop. Mm-hmm. Well, that pity, that euphoria almost always invites back the discursive thought about, well, I've done it, or wow, look at that. Um, and that, in fact, this is the problem of how to get into second jhana is because we are absolutely overwhelmed now with this pity of being able to have finally gotten the mind stopped. But that's only the path of the second jhana. The fruit of the second jhana is to be able to manage all of these really, really good feelings that are occurring because we do feel successful. We actually can control the mind. We can bring it to a stop. But then all of these great feelings are there. Yeah. So the third jhana then is going to quiet down this pity and this sukha so that we can bring into a level of equanimity while we have this state of no thought. So um, this is actually what we're meaning by then the jhanas are capable of bringing us quicker and quicker or earlier and earlier into the process of uh, the Paticca Samapada so that first jhana will be at that point of contact so that we can uh, begin to have the feelings that we want to have. Later, we begin to monitor things down at the level of perception so that we can see how we perceive things. Okay, so we have to find a way of getting through all of these feelings to get them to quiet down because they are, in fact, disturbing. Go ahead. 
Oh, and I think that's an important point because, uh, you know, when I was uh, practicing before, I think for some reason I felt like the more PT I was having, the more successful. And so I focused a lot on trying people to do. increase the, the feeling, you know, of tingling. You know, I wanted to make it more and more and more. And so what's interesting Isn't here... That the- general attitude of your meditator is coming out of Western. I mean, getting a raise in uh, your salary is a good thing. So getting a raise in your pity ought to be a good thing too. (laughs) Right, It's got to be right. The more PT, the more, I don't know, concentrated you are or, or, and so, you know, you would use it as a judge, you know, Oh, uh, I don't have as much, uh, you know, tingling this time. It must've not been as good a practice. And, so I think it's a very interesting point here that the PT is not, uh, a go- you know, is not something in and of itself that you want to dwell on, that you want to try to cultivate. You know, once it's there, actually, he recommends noticing its coarseness the way that it, he thinks that it, it actually becomes, in a way, a hindrance um, to the practice uh, because he makes it, it, he believes that it makes it harder to observe the mind when there's well, a lot of people. It is so delicious. It is so nice. It is so satisfying. And they feel so good about themselves that they think that that's the goal or uh, that they don't want to set down that aspect so that they can go to another aspect. Now, let's uh, talk about it in a very strange way. Have you ever heard of the Harlem Globetrotters, Metal Arc Lemon? I have heard, yeah, I have heard of the Harlem Globetrotters. They're, they were sort of a, a big thing when I was a kid. Okay, they're an exhibition kind of, they don't play professional basketball, yeah. but they're an exhibition uh, uh, on the arts of basketball, and they will go and uh, play college uh teams and high school teams or whatnot. This is way back in the 60s. But the point is, is that Metal Arc Lemon was so good at making baskets that he did not get any more pity from it. Or imagine that the football star who is now making a touchdown, let us say very early in the game, and for some uh, reason or another, he has an extraordinary series of luck so that about every 10 minutes or so throughout that football game, he makes another touchdown so that he's made now 100 or maybe 130 or 170 points at six points apiece because he's made 15 or 20 or 30 touchdowns. Yeah. Now, if he's making the number 27 or 28 touchdown in this football game, is he going to have the same pity that he had when he made that first touchdown? Right. Not likely. Right. No, it's going to mellow, isn't it? He's still going to feel successful that he's made that touchdown. Well, this is going to be the same way that the meditator does, too. That pity, the very strong pity, is for a beginner. Or let us say an advanced beginner, because raw beginners have no pity at all. But once they start getting pity, they think that that's that's the it's cadets. No, it's just a milestone along the way. But the more successful you get at it, the less important the pity gets. And the more important the sukha becomes. Right. Why? Because the sukha is, in fact, the contentment. 
the, the, the sukkah is, in fact, the freedom from suffering. The sukkah is, in fact, uh, safe, <clears throat> secure, satisfied, and comfortable, but that the pity is euphoric. Or it's higher than that. It's not just that it is, uh, I'm completely satisfied with this, but this is kind of like over the top. Yeah. And, and so the sixth training focuses on the sukha. He trains mm -hmm. himself thoroughly experiencing sukha, I breathe in. He trains himself thoroughly experiencing sukha, I breathe out. Exactly. And so Ditti and sukha work together. And, 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 the, and the very beginner will also have sukha before they have pity. Mm. But then when the pity does come, it will then modify back into sukha. Think about it as kind of a continuum to where you have budding uh, sukha. But as the sukha builds, it builds right up to euphoria. But where's the balance in that? The middle path should be somewhere in the middle above the uh, satisfaction. And below the euphoria, at that level of contentment, wow, everything is so nice. Because when the sukha is present, then uh, the, the feeling that predominates is not the excitement and stimulation of the PT, but it's a calmness, it's a soothness, it's a subtleness uh, of the yes. mind, and mm -hmm. the, you relax into it. Right. So uh, you could say then the pity is realizing that you've won the lottery. <laughs> All right. And then the sukha comes in the plotting of how later you're going to spend the money or the, the actual joy of spending the money. But the but the pity is the euphoria of the realization. I've got it. I've done it. This is why the pity is also associated with the uh, Eightfold Noble Path Factor of right attitude, because mm -hmm. both of them have the feeling of success. Mm -hmm. And success is euphoric. Success is energetic. Su success is uh, um, uh, an energetic. But we want to relax that just a bit that we don't want to stay up at that top level of, of sukha, or excuse me, of pity, but rather let it mollify into real contentment or real ease. And so now we have all of the jhana factors together. Mm -hmm. Here they are. That's really interesting about that first, uh, about the Anapanasati Sutta, is that if you understand it correctly, it is nothing but getting the mind into first jhana, and giving it the work to do to get into first jhana, and then giving it the work to do while in first jhana. And that's the entire teaching of the Anapanasati Sutta. Mm. It's all about the titti and the sukha. But there's another point, and that is, is that in the Angatara Nikaya, in the threes, it talks about the three trainings or the three uh, skills to be developed. And it says the, the first skill to be developed is to being able to get into the first jhana easily. Yeah. The second skill 
is to be able to maintain that first jhana. And this is the skill that most students miss out on. The Westerner is always more, 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 rather than really what you need to do is learn how to walk on the surface that you're on mm -hmm. without falling into the cracks. Okay. Yeah. Never mind about climbing the rest of the ladder. Can you at least get yourself onto the first rung of the ladder and get yourself stable so that you can actually stand on that ladder <laughs> without having to climb right to the top of it? Right. Or another one, uh, the uh, high wire act. Yeah. The first step out onto that high wire so that you're fully supported on the high wire until you get that stable there is absolutely ridiculously stupid to take the next step until <laughs> you get that first step absolutely stable. Okay. Then the third. The third skill to be developed is, is to be able to leave the first jhana. Mm -hmm. Now, this is a tricky one. Why? Because everybody says it takes no skill at all to leave the first jhana. Then, in fact, that's just the, uh, the lack of the second skill. And you mm -hmm. pop right back out of it. But what do you pop out of uh, the first jhana? Is you're popping out of wholesome thoughts. And the only place to go from wholesome thoughts is to, guess what? unwholesome thoughts and so you don't fall you don't develop the skill of coming out of the second jhana by falling out of second uh for excuse me you don't develop the skill of first jhana uh maintaining it and then coming out of it as a skill by falling out of it into hindrances no the skill of the first jhana coming out of the first jhana is to quieten then these one after another wholesome thoughts, one after another wholesome thought, wholesome thought, and then we begin to put gaps in those wholesome thoughts. This is now the training of uh, the higher part of, or the fruit of the first jhana, is when we begin to put gaps, visible gaps we can see between the thoughts. Mm -hmm. This is the third skill. The reason that I'm bringing this up, these three skills, getting into it, maintaining it, and then passing beyond it, is because almost all practitioners, I, I would assume that this happened to the Buddha also, that in the beginning when he was practicing, he didn't actually develop the skill of maintaining the first jhana, but rather he was anxious to get into the second and then get into the third. This is the mentality of the ordinary practitioner. Yeah. The noble practitioner is saying, no, we really do need to develop this sustaining of the first jhana. Uh, let us get into and maintain wholesome thoughts one after another after another. Why? Because if we are actually capable of doing that, we can live our lives in this state. Mm -hmm. You cannot live your life in the state of second jhana. No thought will get you arrested. No thought will get you in jail. Uh, no thought at all may get you into the ICU. If you do not <laughs> respond to the doctors at all, <laughs> because there is no thought, no discursive thought going on at all, mm -hmm. then the likelihood is, is that they don't know what to do with you because they've never seen somebody like that. <laughs> and not only that, but for the guy, it would be unwise for him to maintain a second or a third jhana while 
he's got this input of these people pecking, picking him up and putting him on a gurney. <laughs> yeah, I think that, uh, you know, I think that maybe there, it's sort of a popular thought out there that the goal is no thought, right? So I guess that would be second jhana, right? Like um, that people well, think, yeah, we should always... Stilling of applied and, dis yep. and discursive thought, exactly. It's the stilling of the applied thought. Well, we don't want to still it. We want to make it completely wholesome. It will happen naturally. I would say that if a monk was really skilled in practicing the first jhana, he's naturally going to go into the higher jhana simply because he's got nothing better to do with his afternoon. <laughs> and so the first jhana is the only goal. The first jhana is the skill to be developed. The higher jhanas will happen on their own uh, depending upon conditions and circumstances, so long as you have that absolutely firm foundation that you can control the mind to keep it wholesome. If you can control the mind to keep it wholesome, thought after thought after thought after thought, then you can begin to even relax that. But you don't relax it till it goes away. No, you, uh, it, it's sort of like, imagine that you could catch a bird. Catching that bird would be the first jhana. Holding that bird in the hand would be the uh, the first jhana. And also then the first jhana is, can you open your hand and let the bird just sit there comfortably? Okay. Can the bird just sit there? That's the question that we're talking about. Uh, can you Can you allow the mind to come into that wholesome state and eventually, as the Buddha would recommend, you can see that even one wholesome thought after another after another begins to be even more work that you could find a way to even relax that. That that's mm -hmm. what the jhanas really are about is relaxation. Mm -hmm. We start at the top, no relaxation at all, hindrances all around. Then the first jhana is to relax to where now we only have wholesome thoughts. Then we relax that to where we begin to put gaps in those thoughts until we come to the point that there is no thought at all, and that's even more relaxation. However, that point also has a lot of pity and sukha and a lot of really good feelings in it. So mm -hmm. we begin to relax those and come to even more relaxed state. And when we come down to that point, then we recognize that even the perception is work. And we can come out of the perception to where we're fully into uh, sensory awareness or into consciousness because it's just a lot of work to keep trying to make sense out of everything. Why should I keep trying to make sense out of everything in the third jhana when in the fourth jhana I could just be? And I don't have to even process anything anymore. I can just be here in sensory awareness. Hmm. Okay, so in that regard, it is a state of one relaxation to another relaxation deeper, even to more relaxation, into more relaxation, into the deepest of relaxation. Which would be in a similar set that it would be like a deep sleep, except that you do have sensory awareness. But in order to respond to any of that sensory awareness, you're going to have to come out of that jhana. Yeah. 
But if you maintain that, John, and while the cops come by, you're, they're going to put you on a gurney and have you in the morgue because <laughs> you just will not. <laughs> well, you're, you, uh, it depends upon your breathing because they, uh, if they do the mirror test like they did 150 years ago, you know, there was a, uh, a time when, the, when uh, um, they took a dead body and made it a medical issue in the sense of the time of death. Mm. How did they determine that was with a mirror? Do you know how they use that mirror to determine death? They held it against the nostrils, and if there was any uh, sign of moisture or anything coming onto that uh, uh, mirror, then they knew that he was still breathing. Mm-hmm. Except that he may have not been breathing enough for that mirror to show. Yeah. It may not be dead yet. Yeah. Okay, so if they use that kind of text, then these four Jana dudes are going to be <laughs> perhaps buried <laughs> because they're not responding to anything. So is these are the, this is part of the reason why it's important for the monks to get themselves into seclusion, get them into a really really secure environment, because ordinary people do not know how to manage monks who are. Uh, in these states, and there's really no reason for the monks to be in these states anyway, because the real enlightenment is to be free from suffering. Okay, well, agitation, uh, let us say the first jhana, the Buddha says that's enough, mm-hmm. that these, uh, these deeper, deeper relaxations uh, are not fit for living one's life. The monk can go on bend about in first jhana, but he can't go on bend about in second jhana. Well, mm-hmm. maybe he can go out on on bend about, but he'll have to at least have a thought: I should stop now <laughs> and turn around so that this lady can put food in the bowl. Mm-hmm. That that's in fact uh, the the whole point about the second jhana of why the walking meditation has boundaries. Mm-hmm. And that beginners don't need those boundaries, but the advanced students who can walk into the second jhana need a boundary so that they can have a thought to stop. Now is the time to stop in this direction, to turn around and walk back. And so we go back and forth and back and forth in this walking meditation boundary. Because if we walk off in second jhana, we could walk off into all kinds of dangerous territory. Hmm. Right? So these, uh, and the third jhana, and especially the fourth jhana, you can't even walk. Mm. You don't have even that control over the body. Or mm. let, let us say that you suspended that animation. Not to draw a pun there from science fly. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I've heard some people talk about the second jhana as like a flow state. Yes. An example of that flow state in uh, one one ancient one was you and I have spears. We we're we're naked. It's a hundred, maybe five hundred thousand years ago, and we see a boar. We're in the jungle. I take off after that boar. You take off after that boar. And one thing that we have known for a long time is, is that if we lose sight of that boar, if that boar can hide from us, if he can go someplace where we can't see him, we've lost him. 
We have to keep our eye on that boar. That means we're probably not talking to each other or having discursive thought. We've got our mind on that boar and we're chasing that boar. Okay, yeah. so that means that this kind of um, uh, thought process, keeping a mind on that boar means that we can jump over logs, we can tear through thickets, we can uh, do all kinds of things to keep our eye on that boar. This is not exactly the second jhana that the Buddha is talking about, but you can see that it's free of discursive thought. Because if we start thinking about something, we're going to lose track of that boar. We've got to keep our eye on it all the time. Another example of it would be first uh, would be Formula One racing. Okay, not to, not around to the track. Indy, we're not talking about. You could be in any kind of state in that and make it around the track. But on Formula One racing, you know, that's a real road racing in Europe where they just put up a few barriers here and there. But a little old lady can walk right out there on the track. And if you have the thought while you're driving, that old lady ought not be out on this track. You'll kill her. <laughs> yeah. You cannot have those thoughts. You've got to keep your eye on that road and you've got to be able to move that car. So it's actually a very physical exercise, this issue. Uh, and it's very, very highly mind-body coordination. But it is energetic. Wow, the thrill. I mean, mm. those those Formula One racers do it for the thrill. That very pity that we're yeah. talking about is the object. Mm -hmm. I know because I used to race motorcycles. I know what we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, it is agitating. It's the thrill. That's the whole point of it is that it's it's thrill and we like that thrill. But the thrill itself, uh, let us say, is an agitation and it's also a little bit dangerous because if that Formula One racer is more interested in how he feels while he's going around that racetrack, he'll probably crash. Yeah. He needs to keep that thrill going by watching what he's doing and, you know, and, and, uh, keeping track of what's going on. So this is actually the quality of the second jhana that would be naturally occurring, that it has uh, is free from discursive thought and it is euphoric, it is energizing. And so it does have these qualities of second jhana, but it is not the jhana that we're talking about because uh, um, first off, it is not a developed mind is doing it. So we have to develop the mind. So anyway, this is the way of looking at the second jhana and the way that we're developing it is, is it's actually just maybe it's okay, maybe it's not. Uh, but we do recognize that the real point to come to, the important place is to be able to have one wholesome thought after another, after another, after another. Because if we have a sequence of one wholesome thought after another, and we can sustain that for a long period of time, then where are the fetters? Where is the fetter of doubt? There is no doubt. Why? Because all of my thoughts are wholesome. I'm not having any unwholesome thoughts about what the hell is that. Yeah. Okay. How about anger? How about fear? No, we're not. So we're going to, if we can live our lives in that first jhana, 
then we have a, an absolutely marvelous life to live. This is why the Buddha talks about it. And he says, why am I afraid of that rapture and pity of the first jhana? Because it's not the same thing as the sensual pleasures that the race car driver gets or the guy who goes to the brothel or goes to the bar or robs a bank for the thrill of it. I know I'll have to confess. I confess, Your Honor, I used to shoplift just for the thrill of it. (laughs) Haven't done it in 20 years, but... (laughs) <laughs> I also, by the way, on that same regard, I used to take job interviews just for the thrill of taking the interview with no intention of taking the job, just <laughs> the intention of getting it offered. Oh, uh, yeah. Wow. Really weird uh, um, thrill seeking. Well, I mean, that. <sighs> That's sort of the, you know, I don't know what, like the conundrum of, of modern life is, you know, how we're stuck with trying to um, experience pleasure, you know, <clears throat> as the only means of happiness in life because we're not taught uh, how to cultivate these states from within. And so, you know, like you said, uh, it, if you experience a certain kind of pleasure enough, it ceases to be as stimulating. And so then you have to keep re-upping or increasing dosage, you know, and that's that's addiction. Uh, That's like addictive behavior. Yeah. The name evil Knievel comes to mind. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, More and more and more thrill seeking, doing more and more dangerous things. Yeah. But we're, and we're, we all have our versions of that, right? Like our compulsion. I think if you look at everyone's lives, you see that we all have our compulsions. You know, and, and uh, there's a writer, uh, David Foster Wallace, and he had this phrase, a supposedly fun thing. And it, it's a sort of phenomenon of, you know, something that at one point gave us pleasure but after doing it enough, it, it sort of stops being pleasurable, but we keep doing it. We keep chasing it. And then at a certain point, it, it, that activity might become unpleasant, but we, we're, our mind we is so do it. it should be mm-hmm. pleasurable. And so we keep doing it. And now that formerly pleasurable thing is actually causing us to suffer. But we Exactly. We, I'll give you a really clear example of that that I saw so many years ago. A good friend of mine, um, uh, let us say a good friend who was a college professor, he was a psychologist, and one time he took me to an old friend of his and uh, down to the basement that this guy, this was in Detroit, in his basement, he had a um, model train set that would blow away anybody. I mean, it was all over the place. But the guy had gotten old, and he no longer enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. That he had spent so many hours, so many thousands of hours, uh, putting that train set together. But now, uh, any mechanical object like that whole thing is going to break down. And he says, every time that I try to play with my uh, trains, they break down and I don't even want to fix them anymore. 
Okay, um, so that's a clear example of that. Yeah. A very clear example of a, of a uh, we uh, get into the habit of doing something and he builds all of these trains and eventually it becomes too much work mm-hmm. and he quits. Mm. Yeah, I think we all have our versions of that. Yes. I think the the hoarder is sort of like, uh, uh, I don't know, like a symbol for all of us in a way. You know, like there's a hoarder in all of our hearts. And when we see these horrible like hoarder videos, you know, of people who's, they live in piles of garbage. And, you know, I, I think that in a way. Treasures. They're treasures. Every one of them are treasures. Don't call it garbage. It's treasures. Right. Right. <laughs> well, that's the funny thing is that, you know, uh, to, there's no agreement on it, right? So somebody's treasure is someone else's garbage. Exactly and so. People, they live their lives and they fill their, their homes full of possessions. And then they pass. And then where does that stuff go? A lot of times just in the dumpster because people Into don't want the dump. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly, that's exactly what I thought about with the network. I don't want to go into too much detail here, but yeah. I know that when I die, that the network that I have spent so many years uh, building and maintaining is going to get thrown out. Thousands of dollars worth of hard drives are just going to get thrown out the climate code. Nobody here knows what to do with any of it. <laughs> yeah, it's a bracing, it's a bracing idea. Yeah, well, the the point is, is that if there, it's all going to be thrown away anyway when I die, why am I bothering to keep it maintained now? I'm right now, I'm in the same place with that guy with the trains. Why bother to maintain this system? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, well, so that's where the, the distinction between uh, the wholesome, right? So it isn't that like all feelings are unwholesome. Some feelings are wholesome. And, and similarly, not all thoughts are unwholesome. Some are wholesome. Exactly. Absolutely. Thoughts of friendship, thoughts of goodwill. Thoughts of renunciation. Now, these are low-class uh, wholesome thoughts, but they're definitely wholesome. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, right. Um, the, the virtues, right? Um, we don't hear a lot of discussion of, of them sometimes. Um, but, uh, yeah, the virtuous actions, what this would be like, uh, uh, some of the moral behaviors that can be cultivated Right. Well, I tell you what, we've, I've got a student waiting and we've been going about an hour and a half. So why don't we finish this off now and um, you can let some of this sink in and right. we'll, we'll continue on. Okay. Thank you very much. All right. All right. We'll see you later, Alan. Be this well. This has been delightful. Thank you for yeah. listening. <laughs> Bye now.